taking on people privately and then building up your side hustle, your private practice until you're at that tipping point where you're bringing in as much income from the side practice as you are from your working for somebody else. There's very few ways to truly quote unquote isolate a quad outside of a leg extension machine. And for a while, like that, it was taboo to do that. There was some kind of like bad research saying that was unsafe for the ACL. And What's up strength coaches. Welcome back to another episode of the cheeky mid wiki, where we are making strength and conditioning, not boring. And today we have Doug catchy agent. I just did it again, Doug, man. I, it's just, I gotta be done. Yeah. Like I just, I'm bad at English. I told you before, man, I apologize. We got, you did, Doug you did from, rehearse it. He tried guy. He tried I did. I really did yeah. try. Uh, Doug from Resilient Performance on the show. Doug, in your experience, and we're going to dive into your intro later, but what has been the craziest, hardest rehab that you've ever had to experience firsthand? Whoa, okay. Um, honestly, the hardest thing, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's one thing. It's sometimes people with like a history of chronic pain when there's a huge psychological component to it. Because, you know, Traditional like post-surgical rehabs, like an ACL rehab, unless there's like some kind of a sort of extenuating circumstance, they're pretty straightforward. It's like there's a progression you follow and you've got kind of like your regressions and progressions of each exercise and movement category. And, you know, you start off by restoring rate of range of motion, then build strength. And then you're working on running and change of direction. And it's like pretty linear and straightforward. But when you have people like it's sometimes it's the people who they have like this really debilitating pain, but they get an MRI and the MRI doesn't show anything. So it's like, there's no clear structural driver of the pain, but they've had back pain for 10 years. And there's this huge, like kind of emotional component to it. And then it ties into kind of like anxiety and stress. And I don't even want to say like depression in like a psychological clinical sense, but there's like an element of they're sort of depressed and it, it could even kind of delve into the clinical realm with that too. So I would say when it's like, when it's not the straightforward, like, let's just rebuild these physical qualities. When people have kind of these unexplained, but very debilitating type things where there isn't a, um, a clear, like structural driver. Now, you know, sometimes like I'll, I'll have people where like, they might have like a more, like something like an ACL tear, but there's, there's more involved and it's not the straightforward ACL thing. But even then it's just, you're, you're, you're kind of controlling what you can control and doing what you can. It's like, well, let's get the range of motion back. Let's get the strength. Let's work on the running progression. And if there is kind of like an anatomical issue that wasn't totally fixed or that can't be fixed, that's just a constraint that you work around. But when, when like the psychology and like the mind is more of a, of a constraint, that to me is much harder to navigate than something physical, if that makes sense. It does. And that's probably going to resonate with a lot of our listeners because, you know, I know I've had it in athletics where somebody gets an injury. And it, I read it from, I forget the name of the book. I got it right over here, but I think it was the, uh, the rehab perform. I, I don't know. I'm not going to dive into that, but it talked about the fact that there can be a lot of pain in a little injury and a little pain in a big injury. And like, I think right. that's something that a lot of strength coaches can resonate with where an athlete might roll an ankle and it's like, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. And it's like, actually it's, it's not versus you could, you know, tear your knee. You could do something really bad. And it's like, oh, but it wasn't like I had an athlete um, break their foot and then they were finished practice. But then next thing you know, like they had to actually go and get surgery. So I think that is something that resonates with a lot of our coaches. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, it's with a lot of these people, it's like, especially when it's more physical, it's not that like, I know what to do, 
but it's getting someone to do it and that kind of like behavioral element and the and the and convincing someone that something is safe. Um, and when mm. someone's had kind of like more of like the chronic type issues and it's just like that, that pain sort of delves into every area of their life. And that's the lens through which they look at everything. Does it almost um, like consume who they are and who they think they are? It becomes like a part of their identity kind of. Yeah. And, and so in, in a weird way, it's like they're very debilitated by it, but they don't want to let it go. Cause it's, it's like sort of become who they are. Yeah. It's like and they're so, letting go of literally who they are. How do you do that? How do you break through that with them? I mean, it's conceptually very easy. It's difficult in practice. It's like, you just, it's like, all right, like, well, what's the thing that scares you the most? And let's, let's find the closest thing that resembles that, that you can, you can do without a lot of sort of um, symptom provocation and without a lot of fear. Um, and then, I mean, like I did have someone where they have what's called like a Macy procedure in the knee. It's essentially like a, like a cartilage transplant in the knee. Um, and you know, that, that requires like a, a few, a few weeks of, or even sometimes a few months of non-weight bearing. So when they get like out of that non-weight bearing phase, they're very stiff. They have a ton of atrophy and just getting them to, you know, to move can be very, very, um, you know, it, it, it can drive some anxiety and fear. But I had one person in particular who was like, he just, he'd already had like nine other surgeries, not on his knee, but for various other things like hip surgeries. He'd had another knee surgery. So this was like his, I'm not even exaggerating, like his ninth surgery. So by the time he had this one, there was just like a, a ton of fear and, and inhibition. And like he was on crutches five, five to six months after the surgery, which even for that surgery is like very, very delayed. And at that point, it like wasn't physical. It was just like he sort of, he was too fearful to kind of like move on with the progression. And I'm like, all right, well, and he said he had trouble going on the, up and down the stairs, even with crutches. So I'm like, all right, well, we've, we've got to get you off these crutches because if you, if I mean, literally like it had become a crutch in his life, if he didn't get rid of these things, he was going to be just sort of like debilitated forever. So, I mean, I'm like, all right, how do we, how do we find something that's not going to elicit any pain and that's not going to arouse some of his anxiety and also get him to be able to go up and down the stairs? Because at this point, I'm not worried about running and athletic stuff. I'm worried like this guy needs to like have a normal life. And at that point, like he, he was far from that we literally just did like a three inch step up and I'm like, all right, like if this is what you feel comfortable doing, we're going to do like three inches and he could do three inches and it was like pretty easy for him. So I'm like, all right, we're going to do three inches and like pull dumbbells. And that was kind of like his sort of like a one sort of max effort movement in his program. At that point, it's like, we're just going to do like really heavy three inch step ups. And then for him, the weight wasn't as scary as the range of motion. So once we got to the point where he was doing like, you know, 40 pounds in each hand at three inches. It's like, all right, if you can do that, like you can probably with your body weight, go do a step up on a regular staircase. And then we just did like step ups on one step on a staircase, but he was still scared to go up and down. And when he could do that, like 30 times, it's like, all right, you're, you're probably safe to go. Like, let's just go up and down like one or two stairs, or we'll go up first because the up isn't as scary as the going down. We'll go up a flight of stairs. And then we're going to go down the flight of stairs, holding a railing, and then we're going to go up down the flight of stairs, maybe like holding the railing with two fingers instead of your whole hand. It's just like, you have to kind of get creative and like really, really break it down. And that's, that's sort of what we did. And now, now he's doing great. I mean, now he's doing things that look athletic, but that's kind of where we have to start. But a lot of that is too, like you have to have the confidence that what you're doing actually is safe because sometimes, you know, people will just say, okay, well, you're, you're scared, you're in pain. Let's just not do it. But 
and, and that might work. That might be legitimate, like in the short term, but in the long term, you can't do that forever. Cause it's like, all right, like we can't never go up and down the stairs with this guy. He's six months post-op. He's still on crutches. If we never try to do it, like he's not going to live a normal life. And there were, I mean, again, you have to have the confidence that it is safe for this individual to go up and down the stairs once we do the right progression. Like there's no reason why this person should like be on crutches his whole life. Um, but it takes a little bit of like, you've got to know, all right, like what's, what's that threshold you can push somebody at that without driving more of that anxiety and inhibition. And that's a little bit of like an art and requires some communication with the person. But if, if your barometer is like, well, we're not going to do anything that makes you scared or that hurts. You might never do anything with anybody because when someone is like post-op or they have some of these sort of like psychological and emotional things, they tie to pain. If you're, if you're sort of like threshold for doing something is like, we're not going to do anything that hurts or drives some anxiety, you're never going to do anything. And then you may as well just send them home and like, you know, cross your fingers and hope for the best. And hope is not a good strategy in, in rehab. You have to have, like kind of know what you're doing and have a progression. What's up, strength coaches? Taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. It's interesting you say that because hearing you, one of the things that I would say during rehab was, hey, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being re-injury, one is normal life. We're doing nothing above a five. I'll deal with fives, but sixes and sevens, we're not doing it because we have to progress. Does that make sense? Was I being uh, a jack wagon with that? And is that some good advice you'd give to our listeners? No, it makes sense. I mean, look, like some of these numbers are kind of arbitrary. Like, I don't know if 100%. it's- hundred yeah. percent. That's why I would try to give some yeah. sort of an anchor. I mean, what I'll tell somebody is, you know- Let's say someone's like, we're, we're doing a like return to running progression, right? After like a knee injury and just like walking around, not doing anything athletic, you can call it pain, you can call it awareness, whatever it is. It's like a sort of a three out of 10. Like when, when they, when they do something, that's even pretty benign. They're like, yeah, like I, I noticed some discomfort, awareness, stiffness, whatever you want to call it. It's just something that like they're there. It's registering that like one knee is different than the other. I'll say like, if your baseline is say a three out of 10, if we do this like new activity, whether it's like a strength exercise, a running progression, I don't, obviously if you walk around at a three out of 10, I don't expect it to be a zero, right? Because <laughs> we're doing something new that's like harder than what you're normally doing. Yeah, that's So point. I'm like, as long as what we're doing is like pretty close to what your baseline is, like it could be like a little bit over. So again, these are arbitrary numbers, but if you walk around at a three and we go up to a four, maybe even a five, I'm okay with that. But I don't want to go much beyond your baseline because then you're going to get probably more sensitive and it's going to drive that cycle of inhibition. So, you know, it's somewhat subjective, but I'm like, obviously I don't want someone to do something where they're in like sharp, debilitating pain. But if you walk around and you feel your knee just like going up and down the stairs, if we're doing a running progression, then you're going to feel your knee because you feel it walking, right? Or you feel it doing a bodyweight squat. And so Again, like when I introduce a novel activity, I'm okay with some awareness and even pain 
as long as it's like kind of close to their baseline and doesn't exceed it too much. On the flip side, you talked about, you know, the person that will, they were very reluctant to let go of the crutches and they were kind of holding on to that. On the kind of flip side of it, what about somebody that they're doing better, they're progressing, and then it's almost getting close to discharge time, for lack of a better term. For our strength coaches, it's now closer to, hey, you're going to get into practice, you're going to play in games, and you're good to go again. Have you had athletes, patients, whatever terminology that go back and and they're like, man, I just, I don't know. I don't know. And like, how had you handled that? And then how do you recommend it to our uh, coaches out there doing any rehab with their athletes? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. And that's really, it's like, it's kind of, it gets into the, the psychological readiness. Right. Um, and you know, you discharge somebody and then, well, they might have some doubt about going back to the sport. I, I mean, look at, at, at the extremes, like it does become sort of a psychological issue but I think that the physical and the psychological are kind of one and the same. I think if you use the right progression, that's seldom an issue. Because um, if, if, if someone's like, well, I don't feel comfortable like going back to, to practice now, it's because you didn't do enough challenging things in rehab to make them confident. But what I mean, if you did? And what if their listeners yeah, like, but we did? Yeah. I mean, I think that situation is more rare than, because I think a lot of times people use it as a cop out. They're like, oh, well, you know, like. <laughs> The athlete's not ready and they blame the athlete. It's like, well, you didn't, you didn't do things that duplicate the speed and intensity of it. And like clearly in a controlled environment, whether it's like a strength and conditioning setting or a rehab setting, you, you can only mimic the game so much. But I think for the most part, you can somewhat simulate the physical demands of the game. I mean, look, like I don't have like 10 like role players or people where I can play like a small sided game in my clinic, right? Um, but we do things we like, we'll do reactive things. We're doing things with like full intent. We're running at max velocity. You know, we'll do some like reactive cutting. Granted, it's not like reacting to an, an opponent doesn't have the same sort of perceptual demands as like playing a sport, but like, as far as like the, the stress on the tissues and the joint, like we are simulating that. Um, but if that does happen, we're like, you know, in, the, in this theor theoretical situation, someone has gone through the right physical progression. They still have sort of some, you know, psychological doubt, then I think you have to kind of like, just take a step back and it's like, all right, like, what is it that, what is it that you're, you know, you're reluctant to do and then just try to reverse engineer that situation and do put them in, put them in a situation where it's like, all right, well, what's the closest thing to the thing that you fear that you can do without a lot of apprehension. We're going to start with that and then, and then sort of build it back up. And it, it always comes back to that. It's like, what do you want to do? Where are you now? And like, Let's try to find a systematic progression from point A to point B. And in, in the scenario that you bring up, maybe you think they're quote unquote ready, but if they don't feel ready, then maybe you take a step back and just sort of build them back up and then hope that at the end of that sort of second sequence or progression, they're further along than where they were at the end of the first progression. <clears throat> no, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm sure that's helpful for our listeners out there. One of the things you said that really resonated with me right there was the fact that maybe you didn't replicate the exact demands of the game in practice from a perceptual action, but you did with the joint and the muscular yeah. specific specificity. Wow. That was a mouthful. That's something that I took a lot of pride in, you know, doing my, my rehab work with the guys on the field before they'd get to practice. Talk about how you guys do that and kind of help guide um, our listeners with how they should kind of structure some of these things to be able to do that, whether they're in a private practice like you or at the university or uh, college uh, setting. Yeah. And that, that comes back to like, there's always this debate between when it comes to like change of direction and agility, right? It's like, it's, I, I think a lot of times 
people create these false dichotomies like, well, you're, you know, it's the, the, the fixed rehearsed drills versus the reactive perceptual as if, and like most coaches that I know, like no one's doing like totally one of the, I don't, I don't really know too many coaches who are like this boogie, boogie straw man of like, <laughs> you're only doing like the five ten fives and like the things that look really good that are rehearsed. But that's, that's more of a strength and conditioning debate in rehab. You absolutely, in my opinion, have to do the rehearse stuff first because you have to know that like that the joint and the tissues that were injured can handle what it means to do a cut. And if you just throw somebody into like a, a reactive situation, they can work around the issue. So a lot of times, you know, there's this whole concept of self-organization and it's like, well, you know, whatever, whatever the athlete comes up with that's the best strategy because they self-organized it. But that's only true if they have options from which to self-organize. So if we're talking about like, you know, like doing a cut and you have an athlete, let's say they hurt their left knee and now they're planting off their left leg. If that, if that leg does not have, you know, full range of motion, does not have concentric and eccentric strength. Um, if it, if, you know, if in the, in the lower leg, right, even below the knee, like you don't have sufficient like elasticity and reactivity, you don't have the right mechanics at the hip like that, that, that you're not, you're never going to see what you want to see in a cut, what in a rehearsed activity or in a reactive activity, because the joint, you don't, you don't have like the, the position and the motor control to, to do what it is that you, you want the athlete to do. So if you say, if an athlete, like even an uninjured athlete, if you're like, if you haven't do that activity and they do something that doesn't look like quote unquote, a good cut, and you're like, well, that's how the athlete self-organized. Therefore, that's the best solution. You don't know if it's the best solution until you actually do a little bit of a deeper dive and you figure out like, well, can the athlete under maybe a more like a more rehearsed and a more controlled situation, can they actually do what we think looks like a good cut? And if in that situation they can do the good cut, but then in more of like a reactive sort of chaotic situation, they do something different. Well, maybe there is kind of adaptive value to doing what we think isn't the ideal cut because maybe the, the athlete in the more chaotic situation is accounting for more variables besides just like, hey, plant off your left leg and go to your right. But in a rehab setting, until you do the very, very controlled type of activities, you don't know if when you get into the more reactive situations that the athlete like has, again, has options from which to self-organize or basically can make a choice because granted these choices don't occur on a conscious level but if the athlete can't get into certain positions in a controlled environment, they're not going to do it when it's reactive and chaotic. So in a rehab setting, like, yeah, we're, we're doing like the control type things first. Assume once like strength and range of motion are, are, you know, achieved because we want to make sure that the athlete like can, let's say like when they, when they, you know, cut to the left that like their knee like actually will bend and they have some eccentric strength in their knee and they can use their quad to push off versus using more of a hip strategy where they're not, their knee's not going to amortize, so to speak. Their knee's not going to bend. They're just going to kind of like vault off their hip. Or, you know, we want to make sure that an athlete that's cutting off the left leg, like in a controlled environment, they can, they can like have a kind of a lower, um, spend like a short amount of time on the ground. And maybe if they do something in a chaotic environment, if they're spending more time on the ground, it's because they, because it's because that's the right solution and not because, in a more controlled environment, they don't have the ability to get off the ground quickly and have a low ground contact time. So that's where like, you know, 
again, in, in the strength and conditioning world, if, if we're working with like hundred percent healthy athletes, yeah, like I probably don't think there's that much of a place for some of these like more rehearsed type of change of direction scenarios. But in a rehab setting, you absolutely have to do that because you don't know, first of all, it's also safer, right? Like to take somebody and the first time they change direction, they're reacting to either like a tactile or an audible cue or to an opponent. Like that's just not safe. I mean, from like a tissue tolerance standpoint, like we want to make sure that we can use progressive overload, even with a change of direction activity. And it's hard to do progressive overload and kind of like regress a change of direction when you have an opponent that's like you have to react to, right? So um, in the rehab setting, there's definitely a place for for both like the fixed, sort you know, more predictable activities and the more reactive chaotic activities. For any of our listeners out there, regardless private or university professional setting, exactly what you just said, Doug, is why I love DeMarco and Jordan and Elon's eight vector. And yeah, <clears> to I just, me, I just read that book actually. Right. And so you do that in your early off season or you do that in your early return to play because now you know with confidence, hey, they've done mm-hmm. call it 180 back or call it um, you know, straight back, whatever it is, a zero degree cut. But you've done it right. right and left, coming straight back, 45 degrees down, 90 degrees each way, 45 up. And then you can say it with some conviction and you can even regress that with the jumping that they've done, or you can do it where it's Maybe it's only, you know, a three yard uh, change in direction, 180 degrees back. You can do it five yards, 10 yards. So you're increasing the speed of it, Mm -hmm. right? And then you can even add an extra change in direction off of it. So now not for, for nothing more than to me personally as the practitioner, I can sleep at night knowing that the joint angle specificity and the, the muscles, tendons, ligaments, like you've laid down that fascial strain. And then, yes, you could put, you know, your, use your hand and low level, shuffle them side to side where they're doing that perception, reacting to your hand in addition to all of that eight vector, right? No, that's great. And that also, I mean, you didn't ask this question specifically, but there's a whole controversy debate in rehab about like, what's sort of the, what's the best battery of tests to get somebody to like, to clear someone to play. And this, the thing is like, how many tests are you allowed to have? Because you made the point about the eight vector system that the eight vector system isn't an assessment. It's a training system. And to me, the training system and the the process of rehab is more diagnostic than saying like, we're going to do these four tests because it's like, all right, well, what four tests encompass all those things that you just mentioned and like all those different degrees of cuts. And then, you know, it's one thing doing a cut when you're entering the cut from like five meters versus 10, like what's your, what, what, what kind of momentum are you generating before you go into the cut? You get that if you have the right training system and the right progression, just doing like a hop test or an isokinetic quad strength test. Like I'm not saying those things aren't valuable, but there's, there's no, there's no battery of tests unless you're doing like a hundred tests that are in my opinion, as predictive as the, the training process, assuming you have a good process. And that's, you know, I think, I think a lot of times like, yeah. A lot of fields, whether it's physical therapy, strength and conditioning, they have to work at the lowest common denominator. So it's like, well, if we, at least if somebody passed these four tests, that's a minimum standard, but that still doesn't tell you anything because, you know, hop test, quad strength test, something else, you know, a broad jump, it's like, great, but that's, that's not nearly as comprehensive as something like the eight vector system. Now the eight vector system isn't a, a test that's like quantifiable necessarily. I mean, it is quantifiable that you can 
keep track of it, but it's not like a, a known validated, like here's an ACL return to return to sport test. But I would take something like the eight vector system over four or five tests that are validated in a research paper any day of the week, because that's exposed to the, the an athlete to way more things. And like, if something is, if there's a, like a chink in the athlete's armor, so to speak, it's going to be revealed in that eight vector system. It's not going to be revealed necessarily in four tests. You can, you can always cheat the tests. Amen. And that's where going back to what you said, what I would do is I would put, um, I would make it like it was a 505 test and put the timing gate at the different angles that people would go. And it's like, okay, hey, we can test right versus left uh, change in direction. And we would always classify it by, okay, if you're going to do 45 degrees down to the left, that's technically a right leg change in direction. And then the same thing off the left leg. Now we can quantify it and we would just do it where it was either a modified 505. So if we're going to do a five yard eight vector, they would start one yard behind it. Or if we would do it where it was like a full 505, they might go with the 10 yard lead into it, the faster change in direction. And now we can quantify each direction. It was right. always just difficult figuring out like where we put the timing gate, but that's yeah. how we would quantify it. Yeah. No, that's good. You know, like you can do that. I mean, there's so many different approaches. Like I, I just think if you, if you have enough variety in your program, you don't even need to be as, um, strict about quantifying things because it's like again if you're if you have enough variety the weakness will be revealed and things should pass the eye test and if they don't pass the eye test then you know you've got something to work on i think you know in most cases if you are if you if you do have that variety you're going to see it with your eyes versus like if you only have four tests then you've got to get very very myopic about how you quantify because you've got to look for those like really really tiny differences but you know like if you're doing single leg plyos, if you're doing single leg strength work, if you're doing change of direction work, like you're probably going to see it if it's a problem. I think a lot of times like we, we think that we're more, we think that we're more important than we are. And we're like, we got to find this like point, like zero, zero, one percent difference. Like that's not why they're getting hurt. You know, like it's usually something that's kind of more obvious. And, you know, if you have someone, for example, that like can passes the eye test by jumping on one leg really well, like it looks good to your eye, but then you put them on like a single leg leg extension machine and there's like a huge discrepancy side to side you don't need a crane scale to tell you that it's different it's like if they're doing 100 pounds on the left leg and 60 pounds on the right like that's a big difference that needs to be sort of you know that needs to be fixed so um having that redundancy in your programming and not trying to be so smart where you're like well you know i do these three things because they've been validated and re like i'm doing like 20 different things because if if there's something that's weak it's going to be exposed by having that redundancy versus like having that false precision of like, I tested these three things, therefore the athlete's good to go. I think especially early on in rehab, you need to have a ton of variety because that variety exposes holes in the athlete's development or things that, you know, areas for further development. How do you handle the, the difference between isolation and integration when you're going through the rehab process with people? Like how much do you focus on one versus the other? Is it a continuum? And, mm. and how do you see that whole process? Yeah. I mean, great question. I think, like anything else, it's not, it's like the whole double leg, single leg debate. It's not one or the other. Like, I don't know any coaches who like only do one of those things, right? And even the people who are like the big single leg, I'm not going to like name names, but the people who are like really Mike Boyle, training, I'll do it. But no, and I like Mike Boyle, but like they do trap our deadlifts there. So that's a double exactly. leg, you know? So exactly. it's like, no one's doing one or the other. And the people who do like, or like squat or die, like, do they not have any single leg movements in their program? So I think that's just one of those things like, those like kind of bullshit debates on the internet that in real life, 
it's not a re, it's not a debate because people aren't doing one or the other. But in rehab, I think you have to have both because early on when there's a ton of inhibition, right? If you only do bilateral activities, then that that weaker limb can hide. But if you only did single single limb activities, then there's so much inhibition and weakness that there's not going to be enough kind of like systemic load, in my opinion, to drive that process forward. So I think you need to do, you know, kind of like more integrated things as long as it kind of like looks good, right? Um, for that like systemic load and just to sort of drive some of those systemic adaptations. But you also have to do, have to quote unquote isolate to make sure that that, that like, you know, the weaker leg or the, the injured leg or, or limb can't hide because if, for example, like following an ACL surgery, all you did was squat variations or bilateral activities, like you don't just need your quad to squat. Like there's ways to cheat around that. And even, even in like a lunge type activity, and that's another debate in physical therapy where it's like the open chain versus closed chain. Like there's very few ways to truly quote unquote isolate a quad outside of a leg extension machine. And for a while, like that, it was taboo to do that. There was some kind of like bad research saying that was unsafe for the ACL. And now, the, now there's research saying that like, you know, walking puts more stress in the ACL than some of these like leg extension type activities, especially if you kind of confine the range of motion to, you know, um, the first like 60 degrees of, uh, of knee flexion from the bottom. But if, if like all you did was bilateral activity or even a lunge, right? Like lunge is single, single leg, but you don't just need your quad to do a lunge or a step up. So, you know, maybe five years ago, if you talked about leg extensions, they'd be like, oh, that's isolation. It's a machine. It's bullshit. But now I've worked with enough people now where like the limiting factor in their progression was quad strength. And we didn't get all their quad strength back until we did some of the isolated activities in the form of a leg extension. So like, I think there's a place for machines, whether it's single leg or double leg. I think there's a place for, you know, both bilateral and unilateral training. And so we're, we're always going to do both. I don't want to speak for everyone that I work with. I mean, me personally, my bias like is kind of more towards like the Mike Boyle. Like once you're strong enough, if, if your goal is like lower body strength, I think that like doing like a he really heavy rear foot elevated split squat as an example, probably is like better for leg strength than throwing a bar on your back and doing squats because typically like your, you know, your trunk's going to be the limiting factor in your squat more so than your legs. Um, but you, you're not going to be able to do a really, really heavy rear foot elevated split squat early on in the rehab. So you, you need to do things like leg extensions. You need to do things like even a squat variations, um, even like a leg press, like five years ago, it would have been like, oh, leg press is bullshit. It's a machine. I love the leg press now because you can absolutely destroy your legs. And like, there's, you're not going to feel your back at all. And like any strength coach or, you know, aggressive PT, including me, like we have, like, no matter what people say, like, I've never injured anybody. Like I have hurt people's, I haven't like blown somebody's back out where they have to have surgery, but like I've, I've supervised people where they did a squat and they had to stop the session because they tweaked their back. I've never had that happen with leg press. Right. So I'm not saying don't do squats. Right. But I think that there's, there's a, a place for all these things. It just depends on like how you use them. But I, I tend to not be dogmatic about like, I, I don't fall into any camp as far as like isolation versus integration or unilateral bilateral, because I think to have a comprehensive program, you need to do all those things. <clears throat> well, to your point about like the purists, you, you could even say like, um, 
elite FTS, Westside Barba, like they were still even in like five three one type stuff. They were you know advocating maybe at the end of your heavy back squat day and totally. heavy good mornings, you're doing isolative work with your ab training. Like you might be doing hamstring leg curl, you might be doing the leg extension leg curl, and I think a lot of people forget that now because. I know Kier posts a good amount on it now too, talking about how like machines are almost coming back into the fold where yeah. it's like, you can start to do some machine work and it's not the antichrist. Like you're, it's going to be okay. No. And that's a great point. I mean, I think there was this kind of like false perception that like machines will make you sort of less athletic. And th here's the thing, like even something that a weight room purist would consider athletic, like a, an Olympic lift that that is so far removed from the athleticism that it requires to like play a field sport that yeah. like to me it's like if you're playing if you're playing your sport that's the ultimate like there's nothing in the weight room that comes close to that so if you're if you're playing like basketball 6 days a week like doing a leg press or a leg extension machine is not going to make you less athletic at all but it, but it might actually like stress the tissues that are kind of like the weak link in your in your sport because the sport doesn't develop you know put enough stress on those tissues to elicit adaptation for like to mitigate a tendinopathy or some of those things. So yeah, I mean the, the machine thing, like I fell into that trap a while back too. And I did too. I think machines oh, yeah, are frankly, especially the older I get are a godsend. Well, and, and, you know, to like what I said about with Kier before, it's like, how many times have you seen maybe in, you talked about rear foot elevated split squats. Okay. How many times I've seen it where you have to coach the athlete to stop pushing back on the back leg and actually keep the weight on the front leg right? or in a stability ball leg curl or a Nordic or a razor, whatever word you want to use where it's just lumbar extension and it's not actually training the hamstring. And it's like, Hey, why don't you go ahead and just put them on a hamstring leg curl or an inverse curl machine. Yeah. And now you can target the muscle and actually develop it to then do the thing you want to do. Well, it's so funny you brought that up because you know, now you're seeing this stuff like people, it's so funny how like physical therapy is very cyclic as a field. And it used to be like quads were bad because you don't want to be too quad dominant. And then, so it was all about like, to do knee rehab, all you should do is glute medius, which is like weird, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, again, being too smart. And I fell for it a little bit too with the whole like regional interdependence. It's like, it's never, you know, it's, it's never the joint that hurts. It's always some, it's always somewhere else. And if you're like, you're a simpleton, if you're doing knee rehab and you're working a quad, so like, let's only do clamshells and, you know, like band walks. Right. Um, and What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in-person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information. Let's get back to the show. 
Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you about our newest sponsor, Hawken Dynamics. Hawken Dynamics builds and designs software and hardware for coaches, athletic trainers, sports scientists, and everybody in the high-performance department. Most notably, their use of their force plates with the ease of transportation and ease of use. Not only did I use them when I was at Towson, but I've used them when I've moved back here to Iowa with Tucker at Goldfinch. So, check out Hawken Dynamics in the link down below. Now, let's get back to the show. You brought up the West Side stuff. With West Side, people like only focus on the main effort movements, but after the main effort movements, it was like bodybuilding, basically. And bodybuilding right. is like isolation yeah. and machine stuff. So that's where it's funny how some of this stuff, it's like if if you just work off first principles, there's no magic muscle, there's no one thing that's the most important. Um, and even now, like, you know, quads are coming back into favor. And I think now, the pendulum, I think, is overswing where, like, in the physical therapy world, knee rehab is, like, only about quads. And it's, like, as long as you get your quads – as long as you build up your quad strength and you can, like, max out the crane st- scale, like, that's all you need. You don't need to do any kind of change of direction work or sprint progression because, like, once, you're, once your quad's good, just play the sport and you'll get there. So I think it's, it's swinging back too far the other way. But now that quads are back in favor again, it's funny because quads are in favor, but there's still people who are, like – I'm not going to do a leg extension machine because it's a machine that's an open chain. So you're seeing people take all these different, like whether it's lunges and squats and they're like doing it on a ramp or they're doing these like crazy, like reverse Nordics. And it's like, just do a fucking leg extension. Like you're, you're going, you're like being so creative. You're going out of your way to like isolate the quad and the multi-joint movement when you could just sit their ass in a leg extension machine and have them just like straighten their leg. And like, it's going to work their quad. You don't need like, 10 ramps and you don't need to do all this like stuff where they're like holding on to something and going on their toes and doing a reverse Nordic and like they're in a limbo contest. Like I'm not saying that stuff is bad, but I feel like some people are doing it because they just don't like the stigma of using a machine. And it's like, it's okay. You can use the machine. You do it in private maybe if you're embarrassed, but it's like, it's way easier to just get them in a machine if you have one and have them straighten their leg against it. No, I a hundred percent agree with you on that. And I, I think it has just the pendulum swung so far where everything was only on the machines. And then it was like, again, it was the whole notion of, okay, if bilateral squatting, uh, you can get more stabilizer muscles on the, you know, single leg. Well, that was the whole reason behind getting off the machines. Stabilizer muscles need to do their job. You play your sport with your feet on the ground. You must train with your feet on the ground. But that's like you just said about the closed chain, open chain, um, change in direction, agility work, or bilateral, unilateral, it's it's not only machines or free weight. It's how do you handle the two? And you, I mean, you made a great point with the West side. It was max effort, back squat, RDL, deadlift, whatever. But then it was essentially bodybuilding yeah. as much weight as you can get big and strengthen those weak muscles. Repetition method was bodybuilding, right? Like it was max effort and then repetition. That was basically and a dynamic effort and re- max effort. Right. Each day was always paired with repetition effort. Like, and if you exactly. look at the block periodization research, it's repetition effort was always okay, quote unquote. And I put in air quotes for anybody listening with dynamic or max effort. Yeah. And it's funny, like you brought up like the pendulum stuff. I remember when I was in high school, I hurt my knee in 10th grade. I basically, before basketball season, I had those like jump sole strength shoe things. The and, ones with the big circle on the front to like, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 literally, it's literally like a recipe to get an overuse injury in your knee. It's like only do things on your <laughs> forefoot. And it was like a crazy, he's over toe, bro. It was a crazy volume of jumps. It was, it was like hundreds of jumps in a session. You're like sprinting in it. So I did their program. I did it three days a week. 
and I did it on concrete in a parking lot. Naturally, I had like a really bad overuse injury in my knee and I missed my, basically my entire season of 10th grade basketball. Um, but like literally all I did in my rehab was the isokinetic like ascension machine. And now that's like kind of what we're doing again, you know, however many years later, like I was in 10th grade. So like 30 years later, a little less than 30 years later. Um, it's funny how like that's the pendulum's right back to like, that's the thing. Um, and it's kind of like, oh, if you don't have an isokinetic machine in your clinic, like you're not doing your job, right? I mean, I, I recognize the value in, you know, single leg movements and, and open chain movements, but I'm not dropping 30K or whatever for an isokinetic machine. But it's funny because like that's literally all I did. And now if you asked a lot of people, they would say like that's the most important element of knee rehab is like that isokinetic testing. And, and so where are we going to be in, in, in 10 years? It's going to be somewhere else. And then we'll come back. It's just funny because it's always, you know, tick tock back and forth. Now, for anybody that doesn't have the machines and they do have to go with the free weight options, is the whole isometrics, you know, for knee health, is, is that better? You know, slow it down, put them in that long duration ISO, that extreme ISO that people have talked about? I mean, so even with that, that the narrative of like, you have to do ISOs for that. I, I don't think, and this, this goes back to like, I don't ever do one thing, whether it's machines or free weights or bilateral, unilateral. I, I don't think there's one contraction type that is like optimal for any type of injury. I mean, even in the tendinopathy world, you hear like, first it was eccentrics because there was like one paper, but you know, and then it became isometrics. And here's the thing, like you have to, have to look at this stuff through like a common sense lens. If you have a really hot tissue, like a tendon, I mean, what's, what's like the most like stressful soreness eliciting thing you could do in the weight room eccentrics. So now you're going to take someone who's got like a really hot tendon or like a muscle pull, let's say, and it's like, yeah, let's do eccentrics and let's do it three times a day. It's like, well, that's usually the stuff that makes people the most sore and that like hurts the most and causes the most, <laughs> causes the most like micro trauma. So I'm not saying don't do eccentrics, but I think a good kind of rule of thumb is like, if someone is hurt or like, you know, is in pain, do the thing that they can do that allows you to like, you know, use the most, get the most loading without pain whether that's eccentric, isometric, concentric, typically that thing is not going to be eccentric when someone is like, you know, when they, when they, when they're, when they are in pain. But if that's for, for whatever reason, like if that's the only way you can get them to, you can load them without pain, then do it. But, and so I think there's a place for isometrics just because like, yeah, if you want to get better in a position, spend some time there. But I don't think that isometrics are like the best for anything. I don't think that eccentrics are the best for anything. I think people should use all those contraction types, but I think it's kind of a false narrative that like there's one contraction type that's ideal for any type. Because a lot of times, you know, I like to look at, well, how do we know that? And if you get to, how do we know that? Some of the, the isometric research is like, well, they put someone through like an isometric program and they did kind of like a tissue biopsy pre and post. And they saw like, you know, favorable histological changes with the, um, with the isometric uh, loading. But at the end of the day, like, yes, looking under a microscope and taking a histological sample of a tendon, that's important, but that's not actually, it's, it's, a, it's a surrogate for what we care about. Like we don't have like a, a, a tissue biopsy Olympics in sports. We have a perform, and it's like, it's like your sport and your performance. So like do the thing that, do the contraction types that allow athletes to like perform at the highest level and like maximize loading 
And because and, and, if you're loading people that are in pain and you're loading them in a pain-free or a minimally provocative way, that's going to desensitize them. So like looking at things purely through a histological or a tissue centric, that's just one way to look at health. And that's one way to look at performance and rehab. That's not the only way to look at it. So again, like I, I think with any of this stuff, we should, when, anytime someone says this is the best thing, my like bullshit antenna is like really high up because there's seldom, there's seldom like one thing that's optimal or best. And so whenever I hear that, I'm like, well, how do we know that? And when you look at it, oftentimes it's, they're, they're, the, how they came up with that is a little bit unsatisfying. It's like, yes, they looked at, they measured one thing, but that one thing is not the thing we care about. It's kind of like, and this is even, I mean, like, like saying, okay, well, this type of training is best for improving your VO2 max. But that doesn't mean that that protocol is like how every like runner should train because in running, you care about like how, how fast can you run your event? And, and like in an ultra endurance sport or an endurance sport, Yes, there is a correlation between VO2 max and performance, but at the elite level, there's like probably a, a, a VO2 max you have to exceed or have to be competitive. But beyond that, they're not handing out medals, you know, in the Olympics and in the, the marathon to the person with the best VO2 max. It's to the person that ran 26.2 miles in the shortest amount of time. So just like a 40 in football, right? Like to play receiver in the NFL, you can't run like a 5240. You 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 won't be you won't be good at your sport, but you know, can, can someone that runs a, a four or five be better than someone that runs, runs a four or two? Yes. So you have to have a baseline level of speed to be effective in your sport. But beyond that, again, like the 40 is a surrogate or a proxy measurement for performance as a receiver. And the things that we really care about are influenced by so many different variables. That's why to say that like there's one thing that's best for these very complex domains tends to be an oversimplification. And that includes contraction type with an injury. hundred <clears throat> percent. And there's tons of research out there too, about like the, what they call quasi isometrics, where it's just super heavy, slow concentric on the way up like that. There's right. research out there from Ebony Rio talking about how that is, you know, what you need to do. So it's like, man, there's just so many different ways to attract, uh, attack the problem. Totally. And, and I mean, that's what, that's, what's good is that we, we, we have options, right? Um, but especially like early on when someone's in a lot of pain, like my thing is like, they have so much fear and inhibition and anxiety about moving, apprehension about moving that I'm like, well, let's just get you doing something that doesn't hurt. And I am agnostic to what the contract, contract, contraction type is. Let's rewind a little bit. What was your, you know, Genesis story? How did you get into this field of, uh, you know, health and human performance? Yeah, probably pretty similar to a lot of people. It's like, I was the person that was like, liked training, but wasn't <laughs> like that good at sports. Um, you know, so I went to college, thought I wanted to go to, uh, to med school, like went pretty far in that process of like taking MCATs, interviewing at med schools. And then, you know, and I thought I wanted to do something in sports medicine. And then I found out about um, this job in the Air Force that, you know, like search and rescue. When I, my senior year of college, 9-11 happened. So after 9-11, there was obviously like a lot more like just exposure to the military and the military became a lot more relevant because, you know, because of what happened. And so I remember seeing a discovery channel special on air force pararescue. I kind of like filed that away and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. But you know, I'm like, I'm a senior, I'm a senior in college applying to med school. I'm like, probably not going to do that. But then kind of the more I learned about it and researched it, the more kind of intrigued I was. And I ended up withdrawing from that medical school process and doing the 
the pararescue thing for a bunch of years, but I knew that even doing that, it was, you know, there was like a huge physical element to that and like kind of the training background and knowledge that I have, like helped me prepare for that experience. And it, it helped me to like be better at my job and be more physically prepared for my job. But I knew that I eventually wanted to go back into kind of like the sports medicine or physical preparation world. I just didn't know in what capacity. And then I ended up kind of settling on PT, not settling as if like I was, you know, did it by, because I didn't have other options, but because I just felt like that was a better fit. I wanted to kind of combine performance with sports medicine. And I wanted to be a little bit more proactive than reactive. And if I'd gone, you know, the med school route again, you know, there's like basically two options, rather an orthopedic surgeon and you're doing surgeries, or you're more of a physiatrist or primary care person. And in that case, you're kind of like more of a conduit between orthopedic surgery and physical therapy, or you're doing pain management, you know, like injections and stuff like that. And I mean, those things are all great. And I refer to those professionals and work with them all the time, but I actually like wanted to kind of be back, back in the gym. Um, but I also wanted to do something in sports medicine. So physical therapy, like kind of allowed me to do both those things. So then when I was like in my early thirties and I was kind of like getting off active duty in the military, uh, went to PT school, I was still in the guard for my, uh, my air force job. And I was able to kind of do both things for a number of years. And then eventually like once I, um, finished my air force contract, then I ended up doing the physical therapy thing full time and, you know, kind of like doing my own practice with my two business partners, Greg and Trevor. And so that's, that's kind of like the genesis and the evolution of the whole thing. How difficult was it for you opening up your own practice? Cause there are more and more strength coaches, you know, going that route. What would be some, you know, pieces of advice to coaches trying to open up and get their own facility? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the advice that I would give you now is what I, <laughs> what I would give different than what I'll give. Cause I had no idea what I was doing back then. Um, and my partners, I think would probably agree that we didn't know what we were doing. It started out, I think a lot of people in our field, we don't think about business. We think about like, well, what do I want to do? What do I enjoy doing? Um, and I, like everything that I thought about was always like just related to the clinical side of things. So my decision to kind of like open up a practice and start a business wasn't actually related to the business side of it. It was, well, like I knew what the status quo was in physical therapy. It's like you work in a, a busy clinic, you're treating four people an hour, like kind of you're very constrained by the insurance model and kind of insurance insurance is dictating how you're going to treat a patient or an athlete. You can't like, and I, I want to start with from, well, like what's the, what's the best way to actually work with this person. And in my opinion, it wasn't treating four people an hour. It wasn't like being at the mercy of an insurance company. It was like, I want to work with one person every hour. I want to give each athlete or patient a full hour of my time. Um, and to do that required us to kind of go outside of the, the insurance model. So the, like the genesis of the business was we just didn't want to work in the traditional setting. And the only way to do that was to start our own business. And again, we had no idea what we were doing because we were so focused on like, how can we be the best clinically? And then the clinical side of things drove our business model, not the other way around. And then, you know, and I think even early on, like the, if I was advising a, physical therapists who want to start their own practice, like how can you get busy, you know, early on, the best way to get busy is to be good clinically. So our kind of like focus on being better clinically did help our business, but then there gets to a point where like, all right, in order to like scale your business and, you know, and like bring on, bring on new people and kind of create caseloads for them, then you've got to like think about the business aspect of it a little bit more. So, I mean, now 
I'm, I'm much more business minded than I was earlier on. I mean, I still love the clinical side of things and I still treat not that much less than I did even 10 years ago. Um, but now we're much more deliberate about how we do things business wise. I mean, for a strength coach or like a PT that's looking to kind of do their own thing. I, I went into it. Um, like I started my own thing, like right away or right after school, but I also had a little bit of a buffer because at the time I was still, I was still in the air force and the guard. So like, if I wasn't making enough money with my physical therapy practice, I could just go and like hop on, you know, get get on some orders with my, my guard unit and make some money that way. So it wasn't as much of a financial risk. I also had like the Air Force paid for my grad school for my DPT program. So I wasn't in any debt. So for me to say like, oh, you should just like, as soon as you graduate school, start your own practice would be kind of irresponsible of me because I had, I had a different set of financial constraints. Like I had a way to make money if I needed to, if I wasn't busy and I also wasn't in any debt. Um, for people that are kind of in more debt and have a little bit more financial risk in starting a practice, whether it's strength and conditioning or physical therapy, I'd probably recommend kind of like sort of the hybrid way of, you know, you're working for somebody else in a more traditional setting and then start like a side hustle where, you know, even if you're, if you're working a full-time job, it's hard, but you've got to kind of find the time. Like maybe, it, maybe it's even like an extra five or 10 hours a week, try to find like an extra five or 10 hours a week where you can take on private, private clients. And then, you know, when you're consistently busy, like when those 10 hours a week are filled consistently, you know, maybe you try to bump it up to like, say, 12 or 15 hours a week. And then when you're at a point where like you can make as much money um, with your side hustle, even if it's like kind of part-time hours as you could in the full-time job, because if you work for yourself, I mean, you could probably work like half or a third of the time and make the same money as you could full-time. Once you're like pretty close to what you would make in a full-time job for somebody else, or, you know, when you're equal to that or like close and you're consistently meeting those numbers, that's probably the time when it's like, quote unquote, safe to go on your own. And then you can really focus on building your own, your own business, or your own practice. So I think like having the financial security of a full-time job somewhere else, taking on people privately and then building up your, your side hustle, your private practice until you're at that tipping point where like, you're kind of like, you're bringing in as much income from the side practices you are from your working for somebody else, then I think you kind of go on and make the switch. And that's probably like the, the least risky way of doing it. That's uh super insightful for all of our, you know, strength coaches listening in out there. How about the DPT side of it? Cause you talked about that in there. Is it something that you think a strength and conditioning coach would gain value from getting that as well while working at either a private practice college or pro? Yeah. I mean, I get that question a lot. Like, so cause some, there are a lot of strength coaches who are like, I want to get the DPT to be a better strength coach sort of. I mean, that's not like literally what they say, but that's like kind of what they're, what they're implying. If you don't want to do, be a PT and do PT things, I would not go to PT school. Like you can, you can learn, you can get better at sort of the return to sports stuff and you can get better at, rehab or the portion of rehab that you're responsible for as a strength coach without going to PT school. Cause the reality of PT school is like, it's like any other program only it's only some portion of it. That's relevant to what you actually want to do when you graduate. And that even as a PT, like a lot of what I learned in PT school, I don't use and I've completely disregarded since I graduated. So I think now with just the, there's so much information available, like, if you, if, if it's purely knowledge you're after and not like the license of being a PT, 
if you're, if you're resourceful, you can get that information on your own and create your own curriculum to be the best strength coach, even like kind of return to sport strength coach provider that you could be. Um, and you know, like unless you're working for yourself or you get a gig in pro sports or college sports, like, you know, high level college sports, like if you go from being a strength coach to like a DPT, it's not like you get a DPT degree and like you're drowning in money when you graduate. I mean, you know, you're taking, you're taking on, most people are taking on a ton of debt. It's three years, right? Like if you go to a state program, it's probably $15,000 a year. Um, if you go to a private program, it could be up to 50 K a year. So you're, you're, you have to take on an appreciable amount of debt to get that DPT. And it's not like, you know, going to medical school where you take on debt, you're an orthopedic surgeon and you're making half a million dollars a year after your fellowship. Like you're not, you're not making that money as a PT and the ceiling is pretty low unless you're um, willing to like take on some risk and work for yourself or you end up with one of these like pro sports jobs, which is probably, that's harder to do than start something for yourself. So you've really got to want to do the job as a PT, take on that kind of risk and take on that kind of debt. And I even have people who are like not strength coaches and they're like, oh, well, you know, should I go to PT school at all? And I'm like, well, it just really depends. I mean, relative to like being a nurse or a PA, like PT, I mean, I think if you're willing to do things on your own terms and take on some risk, PT is a very financial, can be a very financially rewarding career. But in the traditional setting, like it, it is tough. And I, I, I wouldn't want to tell somebody like, yeah, go to PT school. And then it's like, you know, kind of like over promise them that it's something that it's, that it's not. Um, it does require like a lot of, a lot of thought about like what someone's end game is before they make that decision. But it's not like, it's not like a, like a life hack or a panacea. Like you go to PT school and like everything's great. Flip side of it then, if it's not, okay, don't go do it. How can you advise coaches working in college or pro that work in a high performance model with a physical therapist? Like what's the best way for them to, I'm going to quote my Cairo that I worked with at Towson, play nicely in the sandbox with everybody. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that just comes down to like a lot of that's just, you know, interpersonal factors. And like, if you have the right people, it's like, and everyone knows their jobs, then it's pretty chill. I mean, you know, I think, look, I think if, if, if you have a strength coach that goes up to the PT and says like, how can I help you? Like that's, that's kind of like half the battle right there. I mean, if, if, if a medical person ever gives pushback, pushback from like a passionate or enthusiastic strength coach that wants to get better, that's more of like a problem with like just interpersonal factors than it is knowledge. Um, I think the biggest thing in a, in a team setting is like there's certain responsibilities that have to be filled. And I am of the opinion that like, I don't outside of like legality, right. I, I don't care about like whether someone's a strength coach or a PT. Like I think there are some strength coaches that frankly are more competent at rehab than a lot of PTs. Um, the question becomes like, well, scope of practice. And as someone like, you know, if you have a strength coach that's doing a joint mobilization, you know, day one post-op, that's like probably not good because that's like, you're violating the law in that case. But at like two months post-surgery, if it's an ACL, like I think there are a lot of strength coaches who are more qualified to, 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 you know, assume that progression than physical therapists. So I think knowledge is the most important thing, not credentials, assuming that you're not violating scope of practice. And as long as like the athlete's needs are being met, it doesn't matter who's doing it, whether it's a strength coach 
or a physical therapist. But in a team setting, the biggest thing is assuming that you have enough cumulative knowledge from all of the different players, then the question becomes, well, who's doing what at what point? And that can be, also be somewhat arbitrary because like, yeah, like you could you can make a case that at six to eight weeks post-op ACL, a strength coach that's competent could assume the rest of the rehab and control the rest of the rehab. But maybe three months is where they do it. Like it doesn't really matter where that cutoff is. I just think that it has to be defined. Um, and that's up to the performance director or whoever is kind of like overall, whoever has sort of jurisdiction or whoever like their job title allows them to have overall control over that team or that rehab. Somebody has to figure out where those boundaries are. And that those boundaries are somewhat fluid. It's a sliding scale. But I think that the easiest way to, to mitigate the potential for any friction is to have highly defined boundaries. And then, it, then, it, then it's like kind of easy. But if you don't have those boundaries, if it's just, well, you're a PT, I'm a strength coach. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. And let's figure it out. That's not specific enough. Because like, as a physical therapist, I feel comfortable enough doing point A to point B, like day one post-op to return to sport. But if I work with a strength coach, I wouldn't do that. I'd figure out like, all right, like when is it, when, 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 when is like my part done and when does your part begin? And similarly, there are strength coaches that I think could take on a rehab very early on. So just because people have different job titles in a high, in a high performance team, that doesn't mean anything. You've got to figure out like where the boundaries are and define them. And if you define those boundaries and you've got like cool people that aren't egotistical, it's going to work great. But that's easier said than done. I 100% agree. And that was actually a question that I raised at Towson because, um, you know, scope of practice. It was like, okay, well, when the offseason, when the players are with the strength staff, and if there's a player that needs regression, is the athletic trainer technically not a strength coach right now because they're taking and running what we're doing in a regressed version of it? Yeah. And on the flip side, when they're in practice and the athletic trainers are making sure that everybody's healthy at practice, you know, providing hydration and doing what they need to do. And if we're rehabbing somebody, are we not technically being an athletic trainer? Like, where's the role delineation at that point to say scope of practice? I mean, that's, you know, that's a, I don't even know if I have a great answer to that. I think that, again, it doesn't really matter it as, doesn't, as, as right? long as it's defined, right? But to your point, I mean, if you have someone that like, you're working with someone at, at your old university, football player, and they like strain their hamstring, but it's a grade one. So they are like, they can still do 90% of the training program that you wrote. And the only, only like 10% of it's affected. Like, who takes on the other 10%, the athletic trainer or you? Because as like the strength coach, like you could probably do it. There's no like, a lot of times I think we overly defer to credentials. Like I don't really have any yes. like magical tools as a PT that a strength coach doesn't have. I just have kind of like the law on my side for certain things. But, you know, I mean, like I could teach a strength coach to do manual therapy. I could teach a strength coach that you do joint mobile. Like if you, if I had a strength coach do an internship with me for like four months, like, I could, and you and like apprenticeship model, I could get a strength coach to safely do those things. And if you if you watched enough ACL rehabs, you'd be like, oh yeah, like, why well, up until now, if you were a strength coach, you'd never done anything before six weeks. Well, here's what we do from weeks one to six. It's like not, it's not crazy. It's not like you you like you're incapable of doing it. You were just never given the permission to do it. Um, 
So I, I think so much of it's just like having, having the right people that don't like have the humility to know where their job ends and where somebody else's job begins and to not take anything personally. But that's like really, and I think frankly, it's harder for sports medicine people because I don't believe in hierarchies necessarily, but there is an implicit hierarchy, just like how, you know, how like a surgeon might try to like dictate uh, a rehab protocol to me when that's not like really their job. Like, I mean, I respect what they say, but like I'm kind of the expert in rehab. You're as a strength coach, the expert in strength and conditioning. But I think a lot of medical people, including physical therapists would be like, well, like I've got the DPT, I'm the medical person. So like they kind of want to tell you what you should do as a strength coach. And I think that's the wrong thing because most PTs don't really know that. And even if, even as a PT, like I feel comfortable with strength and conditioning, I would never tell a strength coach, like, here's what I want you to do. I like, it's just not, it's the easiest way to be like, this guy's an asshole. And like, then you're never going to get along. Right. Um, even if I thought that I was right, I think that what a medical person can do for a strength coach is to say, Hey, like, here's what I found. Like, here are the constraints, here are the things that I think you probably shouldn't do. Like here are the constraints to work around right now. Everything else is kind of fair game, but I wouldn't tell a strength coach like, Hey, I know that you're responsible for them now, but like, you know, week one, a one, I want them doing this, this many sets and reps. And like, here's, here's the volume of running. I want them doing. It's kind of like, again, I'll give some constraints and some guardrails. Like, I don't think that you should, you know, sprint them beyond like 75% of max velocity or whatever. But other than that, like you do what you do, like program. Um, and just, just like from a surgeon, like, I don't want to be told like how I should get an athlete back to running. I just want to be told like, all right, what, what do you not want me doing at various points in the rehab? If you're like, Hey, I don't want you be going beyond like 90 degrees of knee flexion for a meniscus surgery for the first six weeks. Cool. But I can do everything else. Awesome. Like you don't want me to start having them run until three months post-op ACL. Cool. But like, don't, don't give me your running program because it probably sucks, you know? But if you're like, I don't want them running until three months, like whether that's, I agree with that or not, you're the surgeon, you did the surgery. Like I respect that, but it's kind of like, don't micromanage the program. And that's kind of the hierarchy, right? When it comes to this stuff, it's like surgeon, PT, strength coach. I don't think anyone in that kind of like hierarchy, whether I believe it should exist or not, I don't think they should be like micromanaging the how to the next person in that, you know, in that, uh, in that team. With that being said, how do you handle and how do you recommend coaches handle something as, um, let's just use the word arbitrary. Hey, they can't run till week 12. So in week 11, you're not allowed to do anything, but then they're like, Hey, they can start to run. How do they blend the two? Is it, you know, weeks 11 and 10 doing some regressed mm, yeah. versions of running and like, what do you recommend? Yeah. That, and that's, so that's, that's a great question too. You, yeah, you're, you're a sharp guy, man. Um, <laughs> it's, that's what's, tricky. It. that's what's tricky, right? Because if it's like, okay, magically three months is here, let's start running. Like regardless of the time constraint that I had from anybody, I wouldn't have somebody run until they did certain things. So Correct. that's also yep. kind of where it's like, all right. I mean, it's like, if you know what you're doing, you're kind of like, well, how much can I get away with? Like, because how do you dance on that fine line between doing too much no, and being aggressive? Well, no. And that's, I mean, I get that too from like sometimes surgeons where it's like, I don't want you doing any like open chain, you know, strength work. But I think that like they need to do that 
So I might have them do like a like an isometric contraction on a leg extension where they're not going up and down, but it's like isometric. But I'll, I'll call it like I'll call it PNF. I'm saying we're doing it to restore knee flexion range of motion. So there's like some ways that you can be creative with it. But it's like yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have an athlete run until they did low level like I wouldn't have them run until they did like extensive plyos. I wouldn't have them run until they did like you know, like dribbles. Mock, mock dribbles and like mock drills and stuff like that. So that's also, it's kind of like, what is, what does running at three months actually mean? Um, so probably in, in this scenario, what I would say is to me, like running means ru- like actually running, like you're running, right? You know, we have an idea of what running looks like. So I, I, I mean, if that was my only guardrail constraint, I would have them doing extensive plyos and dribbles and mock drills as soon as they thought they were ready. And like, if, if I thought that they were like, I was ready to unleash them at actual running, even at two and a half months, not three, out of deference and respect to the surgeon, I would keep doing like, I would just maybe ramp up kind of the intensity of the plyos. I might do like, you know, instead of doing a mock drill to like mid, you know, to, to ankle height, I would do it to knee height, whatever. I'd ramp up the intensity of those things. And, there's only a certain, once you get to a certain point, some of those drills, you can't really progress them any further, but I would keep them at like whatever the max and the progression is. And then at three months, like, all right, like at least we're ready to run, but I wouldn't wait till three months to have them do things that look, that resemble running. Cause then they're not even ready to run at three months. Right. So there's, I mean, I think the point that you're bringing up with your very, very excellent questions is there's a lot of discretion with any of these, any of these, um, guidelines or recommendations there's a lot of interpretation that's left up to the provider and you know like it's it's a huge gray area no matter no matter how well you try to communicate there's always a gray area 100 percent. that's why shout out to kyle cherry the former athletic trainer that i work with at towson because he and i would be like all right cool three week three months they can start running that means we got to start doing these things so that way at three weeks they're starting to allow to run that way we can get them back as quickly as possible, but still as safely as possible within the guardrails of the quantitative and qualitative metrics that we're looking at. No. And, and so if they say three months, like they can run, that's the earliest, right? Like that Correct. doesn't mean that, that like it's responsible to have the running in three months. Like if you have your like return to running progression and they have not, they have not completed that at the three month mark. It doesn't mean that you should run them. Like, don't again, run them. This is We're the literally min- saying that right now, right. coaches. Don't. This is the minimum. Like, if, if the person says, like, hey, they can't do actual running until three months, that's the earliest they're doing it, right? So I think that the progression still matters. Like, I mean, the, the, that's why when it, whenever it comes to rehab, time and functional benchmarks both matter. Because um, you, you do have to res- – there are certain tissue healing timelines that I think are important. But – I mean, you know, if, if you said, okay, like you can play sports again 12 months after you tore your ACL. Well, if you didn't do shit for 12 months, like you're not, even at 12 you're months, not, you're not yeah, ready to play. So, but that said, like if you can get someone, and I've seen this where like functionally they look really, really good at like six months, unless there's a really good reason to have them play. I don't know if I'd want someone to be playing at six months, even if they are functioning really well and like, past all of your, you know, your, your, your return to sport testing, just because it's six months, like the retail rates are higher, even when you control for kind of functional performance. But 
that's where the judgment call comes in because, I mean, there's research showing that like <clears throat> an athlete isn't like really safe, quote unquote, until like the two year mark. But no one's waiting until two years to return somebody. So then it's like, well, what's the sweet spot? Is it nine months, 12 months, 15 months? That's where it gets into a huge depends. So I probably, you know, if I could control it, there wasn't a great reason. I wouldn't return somebody after an ACL in like five or six months, even though people have done it. But I also wouldn't wait two years because then you're kind of like sabotaging their career. So, but between six months and two years, that's a huge gray area. That's where the discretion comes in, the judgment. Um, and, that, and that's where you've got to weigh like all these different things and, and variables. So it's great to have all these different, um, you know, systems and protocols, but you're never going to get rid of that, the need for like actual decision-making because there's just so many variables to influence like when we would return somebody to, to sport. <clears throat> Amen to that folks. Well, Doug, you got to go about the rest of your day. We appreciate you being able to uh, stop by. We're going to link all of this stuff down below anywhere that you want people to specifically be uh, following you guys and um, get more information. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, um, you could find our, our, uh, Instagram is we're resilient performance, physical therapy. So resilient PPT, our website is resilientperformance.com. And then the only social media thing I'm active on individually is Twitter where it's green feet PT. So yeah, we can give you those links and want to have a, you know, more conversation. Happy to do that. It'd be fun. Absolutely, man. Well, appreciate you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks. You too, dude.